Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. Well, today in the show, we're going to talk a little about cotton. No, we're not big cotton producers here in South Dakota. Although I will say, I, I'm pretty sure Darren and I are the biggest cotton producers in the state of South Dakota. We raise like, uh, oh, it's probably 20 square feet of cotton every year just for our field day, just for fun. But <laughs> I will tell you, our biggest limitation here for cotton production, we don't have enough heat. Just flat out not enough heat. And you wouldn't think that if you came to our field day last year when it was, uh, what did we get to, 110 degree, 115 degree heat index? All I know is it was really hot. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk cotton production on the show today, but if you don't raise cotton, we're going to get to a lot of other things like the Ag PhD mailbag we'll uh, hit in just a minute here. Uh, before we do that, I just want to let you know if you would like to send us a question, you can email us, radio at agphd.com. We continue to get lots of questions in every day, and we appreciate that. We'll get to as many as we can here during the show today. If you'd like to call into the show, the number is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or you can find us on X, Ag PhD Media, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. All right, so before we get to the mailbag, I just want to say it's the middle of October, so odds are pretty high that if you are a farmer, you are harvesting, or at least this is harvest season, or you're spreading fertilizer, or doing tillage or something. You're doing something on the farm right now, probably. So I just encourage you, be safe. Take the time to do things the right way, the safe way. Don't cut corners. That was one of the things our dad always talked about is, you know, it only takes just one wrong decision, bad decision, and you're going to regret it for a really long time. So just take your time, be careful, be safe, try to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> Most nights, or at least as much as you possibly can, uh, the, the better you, you get sleep, then the more chance you are going to make the right decisions. That was another thing that we've kind of always talked about over the years. Hey, if you get real tired, that's a lot of times where the mistakes happen and accidents happen. So try to be well rested and then hopefully things will go nice and smooth for you on the farm this fall. All right, let's get to the Egg PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, uh, I get a couple international comments here. First one comes from KG over in Pakistan. Uh, really appreciate the show. Uh, looking for agricultural advice. Uh, yep, you, you bet, KG. We got lots here, and we'll talk about soils, which will really help with just about any crop you want to raise. You're gonna If you're raising it in the soil, the nutrition that it takes to raise that crop is going to be important, so it doesn't matter what the crop is. Uh, those kind of things will come into play. And then we do focus on corn and soybeans a lot, and part of the reason is that's what we're growing on our farm. But the other part is we've got one crop that's a grass and one crop that's a broadleaf. And you see a lot of similarities with some of the broadleaf crops and likewise with some of the grass crops, some of the things that we're looking for. So it kind of gives you an idea of where to start and hopefully at least leads to some good questions about the specific crop you're raising. So thanks, KG. Really appreciate you tuning in. Uh, I get this one uh, from Rafaela, uh, who said, I'm down in Brazil. Just wanted you guys to know I'm learning a lot uh, from your show. Thank you so much. Hey, you bet. Thanks, Rafaela. We, we really appreciate that, too. Yeah, I've been had a chance to go to Brazil a couple of times, and you got some unique challenges there, but you also have some really big advantages, too. So kind of fun to see 
uh, how that has really developed over this, this last generation. So, yeah, if you've got specific questions about your farm, feel free. Send those in. We would love to help. Uh, get this one that came in from Mark, and he's asking about naturals and wondering, what do you use for naturals or biological-type products in soybeans? How do you work them into your rotation? At what timings would you be doing things, and what specific things are you looking at? Well, the first thing is we're starting out with seed treatment naturals or biologicals, as many people will call them. Really like that. That's helping us get better emergence, faster emergence. That's a really big thing. We've been able to speed up emergence a lot. It it seems to us like we have a better stand. In other words, we're, we must be getting a little bit more disease protection, even though it's not technically labeled with the biologicals we're using, but it just it, it certainly appears that way. And also, one of the biggest things is more nutrients in the plant. When we've done plant tissue analysis, we have more nutrients in the plant. So heat shield and NutriCycle are a couple things we're using on the seed. Then when we start talking post-emerge, we really like MegaGrow. We've been talking about that product for probably 15 years now. That's a patented safener for Roundup. It's plant growth hormones. It's going to really stimulate root growth as well. So early in the season, that's good. Later in the season, we've been using a product called Inertia. And once you get to flowering, at, at that point, we're, we're trying to push flowering rather than worrying so much about the root growth early on, like with the MegaGrow. So those are some of the common things that we're using. Or, or I should say the things we're using on lots of acres. And then we continue to experiment with newer things all the time. So I, I, I'll bet you there are 10 other things we probably at least tried on the farm this year. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how many pan out and how many don't. I had a question uh, that came in from Costa Rica. This one's from Alan. He said, we're raising corn for silage here, selling it to neighbors with dairy. No, very similar to what you guys are doing. He said, I'm curious about your fertilizer removal app. When you type in acres, it'll tell you pounds and acres, and that's great, but we're using hectares and kilograms here. When I use your metric conversion, I'm curious, is that telling uh, metric tons per acre, metric tons per hectare? Actually, when I'm looking at this, Alan, it's just telling you metric tons, period. So for every... Like, for example, just use select the corn silage, 67% water, and it's going to give you just the, the raw wet tons, not, not dried down and dry matter. But you look at 20 tons, and you could say, well, that took me two acres to get or two hectares to get. It well, doesn't matter. Just yeah. for every 20 tons, that's how much you're removing. Right, but it's just like if I'm talking in our terms, uh, we say 200 bushels of corn. Well, that could be per acre. That could be two acres, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is for every 200 bushels of corn, we remove so many pounds of these nutrients. Thanks for the question. If you got more follow-up questions, be sure to send them to us, radio at agphd.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My mom's got a new case IH tractor, and it can do it all. Bale hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Ship like a race car? Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com. 
It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're talking about cotton on today's show. And I know we don't talk about that a whole lot. We do take some questions from now or now and then. But wanted to spend just a little bit more time talking about it today. So if cotton is a crop that you're raising or you've got questions about, please give us a call today. It's 844-44-AG-PHD. We'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email if you'd like, radio at agphd.com. Got Cody Mole on with us right now with BASF. Uh, covers areas down in New Mexico and Texas uh, and maybe beyond. I don't know, Cody. It, sometimes when you do a good job, they add more territory to what you're covering. Well, that's right. Thank you for having me on today. I sure appreciate it. You bet. I do cover a large territory. so it's- Yeah, that gets to be what, what happens in our industry. We, we cover quite a bit. And the cool part about that is you get some different climates. You get some different microclimates out there. And you, you certainly get to meet a lot of growers and agronomists and so forth. And uh, it, it's fun to see how people do things in different areas. And you say, well, gosh, New Mexico and Texas are really close. Yeah, they are. But I would bet, just like when you drive to the next county over from where you farm, you meet people that are doing things a little bit different. So I'm guessing the folks in New Mexico might do it a little different than in parts of Texas. Well, you're exactly right. And so a lot of this this territory that I cover, it represents about 20% of the acres that are grown in cotton in the United States. And so We've got varieties that fit, you know, really good water, really good irrigation that they have in eastern New Mexico. It's more like a desert, but they have good irrigation and dry land varieties. And and so it, it we cover a range of elevations from 4,000 feet in elevation down to uh, sea level in Texas. And so lots of different micro environments. You're exactly right. Yeah, you know, when you think about 4,000 feet, and, and sometimes folks who, who farm in flat areas out there say, okay, talk to me about this elevation difference. My first thought, Cody, is I'm thinking about how cool it gets at night when you get that elevation. W- what are some of the advantages, disadvantages, when you're working with, with guys with 4,000 feet elevation? Yeah, so when you're, when you're, you're, you're right again about that elevation and it, it freezes earlier, 
and um, and so they farm a little bit different than the guys that uh, have have a say a 2,000 foot elevation. Um, they usually plant a little bit earlier, uh, believe it or not. It's a little cooler, so they up their seeding rates and uh, knowing that they're going to lose a little bit more cotton after planting. Um, and then they try to make sure that that cotton is mature by the time that the freeze comes and so they, they don't lose yield or quality. And so those guys are hustlers. I call them hustlers because they're, they're always getting after it, trying to make a short season um, and, and make good yields. I feel the same way about farmers in the northern part of the U.S. They really got to hustle. They don't have a lot of growing season and no time for mistakes, no doubt about that. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about just this this crop of cotton overall and crop protection. Obviously, a lot of work's been done from seed traits to seed treatments and, and everything uh, during the crop. Uh, what are some of the key things that, that growers need to do to, to be successful with crop protection? Yeah, so uh, for cotton specifically in West Texas in my territory, the you know this year's been a little rough. We've had a, a drought, and so I don't think yields are going to be as good as what they expected. Uh, but I think farmers should always be looking to the future and what's coming. And and for us, for BASF, we've got a couple of different cottonseed brands. We've got FiberMax cotton that we sell in Texas, and we have Stoneville cotton that we sell uh, really all across the cotton belt. And we're also coming with a new uh, trait package next year that we're going to be selling for the first time to the cotton farmers, and we're calling it Accent Flex. And what's exciting about that is we're going to be able to bring a quad stacked herbicide to the market. Uh, today, the farmers use Dicamba and Roundup and Liberty, and those are the things that they, the tools in the in the trait packages that these guys have to use to kill weeds, but we'll be bringing a fourth piece, which is an HPPD to the market. And so we're excited about that. And I think that's something that farmers should be looking into for the next few growing seasons and learning about how to use this technology and, and uh, how it can help them on their farm. All right. So let me just clarify on that. Accent Flex Cotton, HPPD plus Roundup Liberty and Dicamba? That's correct. That's, yes, sir. We're excited about it. Yeah, that is that is fun. It, it's going to be neat having more tools in the tool belt to fight some of these weeds. Because what are your tough weeds there in, in uh, Texas and New Mexico? What are your biggest uh, broadleaf competitors for cotton? Yeah, our biggest broadleaf competitor is Palmer amaranth. We call it pigweed down here. Um, but that's really the number one weed that these guys really uh, fight year to year in and year out. And so uh, being able to bring a new mode of action, uh, a mode of action that's not really used in our area. I know where you're, you're from, HPPDs are probably sprayed quite a bit, but down here they're not, so we don't have any resistance to it yet. So um, Palmer Amaranth would be the number one weed I think these guys fight. Yeah, that, not much changes as you travel around the country with that one. It seems like everybody's fighting a pigweed up north. It's probably more water hemp still, but uh, Palmer pigweed across much of the country. Uh, lots of challenges there. Yeah, Cody, that's exciting to get that new trade out. And you said next year that should be a full launch? Yeah, so next year um, we will be selling the varieties with the trait. Uh, we're still waiting on the registration for the herbicide, which is called Elite 27. And we'll be waiting on that herbicide, uh, the registration on that herbicide. We believe we'll get it in 2025. Very good. Well, Cody, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on. I always learn a lot when we get a chance to talk to folks in different parts of the country, and, and this was great information today. 
Well, good. Thank you for having me on. I sure enjoyed it. Let's head out to Georgia right now. We got Mark Hanna on with us right now. Farms down in Georgia, and cotton is is one of those crops on the list. How you doing, Mark? We're doing good. Hope y'all are doing good. We are. We are. Harvest is still rolling along up here. A lot of guys are starting to wrap up. We had a hot year up here. We took all the heat. We didn't send a lot your way. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's it's very. The weather's excellent down here now. We're on the dry side, but. We're in the middle of peanut harvest and starting cotton harvest up, so dry weather's good for us right now. Yeah, I know. My brother says that, too. He's like, ah, the best time for a drought is right during harvest season. I just soon have a nice day every day so we can just get done with things. So how long do the peanuts take? I don't take? Are you, anybody are you... will argue with <laughs> No. I'm no. Well, especially with peanuts, too. I mean, you, you've got them turned, uh, and you just got to roll through, or are you still digging some up? No, we're still digging. We're about 60% right now digging. Uh, and and probably about forty percent uh, harvested. Okay, okay. And then the cotton does that happen at the same time, or do you have to finish up the peanuts first? Well, with with the uh, um, introduction of the roller pickers, uh, that allows us to do both things at one time. We are not picking cotton yet, but it's just because of the maturity. We're we're just defoliating now, so we'll be picking in about a week. Okay, talk to us about that defoliation process. Do you always do the same products, and uh, what are you really targeting with that? Is it just to dry up that that stem on that woody cotton plant, or is it to kill some weeds out there too? Well, it, it's it's multi-purpose. We see uh, we we don't have any weeds. All we got out there is cotton, of course. But, <laughs> of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, the main thing is is a bowl opener. Uh, we're, we're dropping the leaves. Uh, you have a mature plant, uh, but uh, we defoliate it somewhere around 65 or 70 percent open bowls. And uh, you have a bowl enhancer uh, to help enhance opening, and you're also dropping leaves. And then we spray a, a herbicide on there that actually prevents regrowth. Uh, down here, uh, it's not uncommon for us to still get some real warm weather this time of year, even though right now we're at about uh, I don't know, 70 degrees, 75 degrees maybe, but uh, and, and it'll be that way for several weeks, it looks like. We, we usually have our, we're, we're extreme South Georgia, we usually have our first frost around the middle of, the 12th to the 15th of November is sort of the, the first frost date usually. Okay. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this too. You, yeah, you got peanut harvest going on and you're defoliating cotton and soon you're going to be harvesting cotton with those roller pickers. It just takes a lot of labor at this time of year to get all that done. Well, before roller pickers, it really did. Uh, this roller picker, one man can do what like four people were doing before uh, because we had to be able to pack it in the modules and and, and all of that. It was very labor-intensive, but it's, it's, it's sort of a one-man show now per picker. Well, Mark, thank you so much. I know you're super busy. Really appreciate having you on here, and uh, good luck with the rest of Harvest. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It changes everything. So says Indiana corn grower Nathan Davis about innovative Zyway LFR fungicide from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides are the first and only at-plant corn fungicides to provide unprecedented, season-long, inside-out foliar disease protection. Discover more grower and retailer success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com.
Always read and follow all label directions. When I step on someone's farm, I feel like I've already walked a mile in their shoes. I spin spring on the tractor and fall in the combine. I see the excitement in my kids' eyes on our farm, but worry if there's enough of it for all of them. I make sure everything Case IH makes meets the challenges farmers face, because I face them too. My name is Ryan, I am a farmer, and I work at Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experience the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids. Extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. Effortlessly manage your farm fertility with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether it's building soil, balancing nutrition, or maintaining fertility. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Join Verify today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions. When nematode pressure mounts, Seed Applied Trunemco provides assurance. Growers using Trunemco are seeing a difference from early plant vigor to improved soybean and cotton yield. Impressive results are everywhere, and we want to hear about yours. You could win $20,000 and be named a Trunemco Elite Grower. Don't delay. Contest ends October 31st. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. See full rules. Learn more at newfarm.com USST. We're talking about cotton production, and as Brian mentioned, we don't raise a whole lot of cotton up here where we farm, so we're talking to uh, some of our friends and some experts in the industry here about cotton. We'd love to hear from you, too. If you're raising cotton, if you want to talk about this, 844-44-AG-PHD. Got Matt Miles with us right now, farms down in Arkansas, works with the Extreme Ag Group, too. Wears a lot of hats. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. You're a busy guy. Talk, talk to us about cotton just a little bit. Does that play into what you're doing on the farm very often? Oh, it does. Yeah, that's where we started. It's kind of it's kind of cool when when y'all were saying you were going to have a cotton show. It kind of I about I had to pick myself up off the floor. <laughs> I didn't know y'all even knew what cotton was. You're like I'm now, gonna I'm gonna get a phone call here. <laughs> I'm gonna be on the phone talking about yeah. this. So tell us yeah, about no, this. Is, cotton, is it your first love? Is cotton your first love for a crop? You know, cotton is what brought us to the dance. That's where we started. In our area, uh, we didn't start growing corn until about 2007. We always grew beans, but with all the cotton infrastructure down here in the Mississippi Delta, you know, if you had good ground, you were expected to put it in cotton. So up until 
you know, like I said, 2006, 2007, that was our primary crop. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. I, and I've been down in your area and seen, um, seen a little bit of this about what you're talking about with the infrastructure and everything. And, you know, just like for areas where, where guys raise sugar beets and sometimes we'll get questions from non-farmers, well, why don't you raise sugar beets in this other area? Man, if there isn't the infrastructure there to process the crop, you just don't even have that option. And uh, with cotton, it likes things a little warmer than we normally are up here in South Dakota. I can, I can say that pretty safely. If we plant it early, it doesn't turn out very well. How early can you plant it down in Arkansas? Is it kind of the same thing? It's got to be pretty warm out to, to get started? Yeah, we need about, I mean, I think the, the, the mainstay soil temperature would probably be around 65. Uh, of course, you know me, I push the limits on that as much as I can <laughs> to get it in earlier. Uh, you know, we'll do that around soil temperature of 55 degrees. I, I tell people all the time, cotton is probably one of them. The cotton is a plant that when it's starting to come up, it's looking for a reason to die. Um, it's one of the, you have to baby it more than anything else where you can take a soybean and you can, you know, damage it, you know, right at planting or a little bit above planting. When it first comes out of the ground, it'll still recoup and be fine. If you don't start with a good stand of cotton, you're always going to be fighting that. You know, you, you mentioned planting early, and I know talking to uh, Cody Mole down in Texas and New Mexico, he said the guys that are planting when it's a little cooler are upping their population to try to overcome any loss. Is that kind of a standard practice? If you're going to plant early, got to do everything you can to protect that seed and then probably plant a few extras? Yeah, absolutely. That You know, it's just like any other crop. You know, that, that first planting is where, where your money is. So if we're going to go out there, I do the same thing, use the same scenario with soybeans. If we're going to go out in a 15-day forecast that don't look really favorable, we're going to e- increase that population a, l- a little. Now, of course, the price of cottonseed is so expensive, you've got to be really careful, you know, that you don't put too much. Back in the old days, before all these technologies, you know, it wasn't as big of a deal to have a higher population. But now you're really getting into your pocketbook if you don't. If you don't be careful and get the, you know, pretty close to the right amount. You know, with other crops you're raising, Matt, we've had a lot of fertility conversations. You are really focused and detailed on how you're going to feed that crop and what the timings are for, for getting that fertility out there. How about with cotton? I would assume a lot of the soil things are the same, but how about the crop timings? Do you need it out up front or do you do some fertility in crop too? Same, same scenario. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I took my cotton mentality. That's where I started having success in soybeans is I took the mentality of, of how we grew cotton and I instilled that into soybeans, which is multiple applications of fertilizer, you know, splitting those applications up, not front loading, you know, and, and f- figuring out the demand needs of the crop and then putting it there when it needs it. Prime example, you know, potassium is, is you know, cotton is a heavy user of potassium. And you can, you know, there's a lot of guys that put all that out today. They'll be putting out their whole potassium needs for next year's cotton crop. And what we see so many times when we've done that in the past is somewhere around mid-bloom, you know, you start running low on, on potassium. If you do tissue samples, you'll see that real quick. The cotton will turn red, have a red tint to it. So, you know, that's very important in our area, especially on these uh, low CC soils, is to make sure that we – you know, we don't front load that crop with the fertility. Nitrogen, potassium, you know, phosphorus you're okay doing, but nitrogen and potassium, you really got to spoon feed that. How about from a crop protection standpoint, 
diseases. I know insects are a big challenge in cotton. Uh, and of course, palmer pigweed's always present. But what about disease in cotton? Is that a big one you got to fight? You know, it's it's not as bad as as it as it is in some crops. Um, you know, cotton once you get it up now, seedling disease. Yes, you want a you want a really good seed treatment on it, which I which I'm a I'm mandatory seed treatment on anything I plant. But once you get that crop growing and it gets a bark on it, uh, it's pretty resilient. But what we've seen in the past is uh, target spot. That's probably our um, our number one disease outside of blight there's some varieties that get you know blight in them and that's just more of a varietal thing sometimes they're worse than they are other but we've proven that there is a positive roi to actually fungicide in cotton now i just started that three to four years ago prior to that you know i would have laughed at a guy told me to fungicide my cotton but we actually went out did the trials you know replicated them over a couple of different years and we're seeing where it's an advantage to actually use a fungicide for target spots, somewhere there around, you know, the first half of bloom. We were just talking with Mark out in Georgia, and he was talking about they're defoliating co- cotton right now, and I would assume there's a lot of tricks to the trade there. This has been something big you've talked about in soybeans and other crops, this whole defoliation process. Uh, when you're doing that, and Mark was talking about uh, uh, bowl opener and uh, making sure you don't have regrowth if you have ideal weather popping up later on. Uh, it sounds sounds a little complicated for me, Matt. It is. It's not like going out there and desiccating soybeans. It's a complete different uh, scenario, which you can't harvest cotton if you don't defoliate it. So that's where some of you know where some of the desiccation of the soybeans came from. Was you know I, I guess I should say a lot of my grain experience I've I've actually learned from from growing cotton. Cotton. Interesting. Yeah, it's fun how these crops uh, translate, and there's things you're going to learn from one to the next. I remember uh, going down to Mississippi when corn really first started to be a big thing. Uh, It was a lot of guys that had been raising cotton, and it was probably around 2007, like you say, where guys were starting to shift and raise some more corn. And I went out and looked at some fields, and I was talking with one farmer who had never raised corn before. He said, I don't even know what I'm looking at, Darren. Do I have decent corn here? And he probably had 280 bushel corn. And I said, yeah, I think I think you're doing great. Uh, but like you say, a lot of that cotton was grown on some pretty darn good ground. And if a guy was was excellent at managing fertility there and, and keeping the plants healthy, uh, he's probably going to do a good job with other crops too. Yeah, that's that's been that's been my biggest teacher uh, in my ag career has been, has actually been, you know, farming cotton because, Everything we learned there, we could instill into these other crops and get a positive response. Because you go over cotton so many times, like in the Mississippi Delta, you know, we're probably spraying for plant bugs six to eight times a year. So when we're growing corn or or soybeans and we're spraying once, maybe twice a year, you know, we really feel like we're doing something. Yeah. Well, what a difference, man. That's a that's a lot. Now, in terms of of modes of action on insecticide. Uh, have some of the new ones been helpful for plant bugs that have added a little more versus uh, just your basic pyrethroids or lores band that we had in the past? Oh, yeah. We've had to move completely away from just a straight pyrethroid, you know, and go into other products that's got residual. Uh, you know, there's some products that, you know, we'll, we'll spray, uh, you know, for the actual insect, and then there'll be a piggyback in there for the, for the larvae, for the eggs. And, uh, you know, it's it's a multiple complex of, of you know pesticides you have to use depend and there's multiple insects that you'll have you 
<clears throat> you'll have thrips early, and then you'll have, um, you know, plant bugs. You'll have aphids. You'll have, if you're not planting BT3 corn, you'll have worms. Uh, so far, the BT3 corn has helped, you know, on the, on the bowl worm. We're still not seeing any of those in the BT3. So, you know, some of these technologies have helped reduce that. But you're, there's still a lot of different modes of action you got to go out with, even as stink bugs. Yeah, it's not a not an easy crop to raise, but boy, there's some farmers doing an awesome job. We're talking to one of those farmers, Matt Miles, farms down in Arkansas, also works with Extreme Ag. Matt, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, Fred, how's harvest coming? Well, got to take care of my STDs. Your what? <laughs> my soil transmitted disease. Got white mold spreading in my bean fields again. Foliar fungicides alone just aren't cutting it, and I can't seem to get rid of it. Fred, get ahead of the spread. My agronomist highly recommends Contans WG from Sipcam Agro. It's definitely your solution to control white mold at its source. Huh, thanks, Joe. I'm calling my retailer today for Contans WG. In 1923, Bert R. Benjamin had a vision, an all-purpose tractor that could do more. With that, the Farmall was born. This year, Case IH is celebrating 100 years of Farmall, 100 years of milestones, 100 years of innovation, passion, grit. And they're doing it through your stories. Share them at Farmall100.com. One lucky storyteller will win their own Farmall, the tractor that is the one for all. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long foliar disease protection from the start. Active ingredient flutriafol moves through your corn plants as they grow for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. Growers and retailers are sharing their Zyway brand fungicide success stories at zyway.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. Season strong with Intego Sweet Soybeans, Intego Fungicide Soybeans, and Intego Sweet Cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com slash Intego. Always read and follow label instructions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. 
Thanks for joining us today. We were talking about cotton production, but we've got a number of questions that have come here uh, for the Ag PhD mailbag. We're going to dive back into some of these questions. Uh, again, if you are, have an agronomic question or, or would just like to chat about what's happening on your farm, it's 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can always email us radio at agphd.com. This one comes in from William. He's out in southwest South Dakota. He said, guys, uh, get a soil test for you to look at. This is a vegetable garden situation. And I've got excess carbonates showing up on my soil test. I'm curious, what does that mean and what do I do about that? Okay, so where where you're going to see excess carbonates and bicarbonates typically is in high pH soil with that are considered calcareous soils. And you're probably going to have what we would call free lime. So we run our soil samples through Midwest Labs. And if you wanted to do that, so we're all talking the same stuff, you certainly could. Midwest Labs runs this test called free lime. Whereas the lab you ran it through, they run a test apparently called excess carbonate. In both cases, we're dealing with a lot of calcium. That's really what it comes back to because your calcium level, 6,097 parts per million. And just for comparison here, potassium, 263 parts per million, 237 for magnesium, and your phosphorus is 4 parts per million. So one of the things we talk about all the time when soil pH is high and yours is 7.9, that means that something's out of balance in the soil. So your cation exchange capacity is 33 and your calcium is 91%. When we see numbers like that, and I mean, usually we tell people run that free lime test, or like in your case, you ran the excess carbonate test. We have free lime. So there's basically calcium floating around in the soil that's not attached to something, most likely. And that's why your calcium percentage is pretty high. That's why this carbonate level is pretty high. And carbonate, by the way, it's salt of carbonic acid. And it's what's going to happen when you have all that free lime. It's going to tie up some of the minerals that your crop needs. So, for example, iron or manganese or copper. And your levels of those, by the way, are quite low. Like zinc, you're at 0.2 parts per million. Copper, 0.8. Manganese, 1. Um, and like I said earlier, phosphorus, four parts per million. I, I mean, if I'm looking at this, usually when we have in a field situation, like in our region here, we have more rainfall. And we when we see free lime, then we typically are saying, hey, we got to take a look at drainage. Okay. If in your case, what's happening, we believe, this is just a guess, but you're probably watering this garden, which is which is great. But we're concerned that you may not be watering deep and you're watering more often. It's the same kind of thing we see in lawns. So a lot of people will water every day or every other day and they'll throw a little bit on. That's not the way we would recommend doing it, either in a garden or in a lawn. What we recommend is do a big dose of water once a week, call or good. Maybe an inch a week or depending on your region of the country and how hot it is, maybe you need an inch and a half a week or something. But water once a week, try that. And then that's going to push stuff down through the ground more rather than bringing salts up. Okay. So that's the first thing is how you water. After that, um, if you wanted to flush out that excess carbonate and flush out um, some of that excess calcium you're dealing with, you could throw on a whole bunch of elemental sulfur. And in a garden situation, would I do that? I absolutely would. So I'd figure it at, let's call it roughly in the range of 600 to maybe even a 
thousand pounds of elemental sulfur on a per acre basis. So just divide that out by how many square feet you have, and that would tell you how much elemental sulfur you would need. If you're reading a lot of gardening magazines, this is exactly what they'll tell you to do when you got high pH and free lime out there. And in a field situation, I can't really afford a thousand pounds of elemental sulfur. I might work on it over the next 20 years to get that fixed. But in the garden situation, when you're only dealing with a few square feet, you could fix it immediately if you wanted to. Then what I would take a look at is I'd probably make sure I'm getting phosphorus out there immediately because you need more than four parts per million of phosphorus. So I'm probably thinking about on a per acre basis, putting out, let's say it's 100 pounds of MAP or DAP. So on a, on a per acre basis, and again, just do the conversion down to per square feet. And then with zinc, copper, and manganese, I would get some kind of micronutrient blend out there. You don't have to get real carried away, but you need a little bit more zinc, copper, and manganese as well. So those are the things that I'm really looking at. If you want to push the potassium, magnesium just a little bit more, you can certainly do those things. But uh, that's the biggest stuff I noticed right off the bat. I'd probably add some elemental sulfur, and I'd make sure I get more phosphorus and just a little bit of zinc, copper, and manganese. All right. I uh, get a couple other questions here. Uh, one of them is, uh, I'm trying to think how to say it's from HS. Uh, you didn't elaborate when you're talking about salt content between dry and liquid forms. You often talk about manure and 500 pounds per acre. How about if I'm using liquid fertilizer, if I'm using dry fertilizer, how do I quantify the salt? It doesn't make much difference. So I, I, I care about salt, whether it's in liquid form or dry form, because in the dry, it, it, well, either way, salt can be a problem for you. And it only takes just a little bit of moisture, and then you're dealing with the same thing to make that dry into a liquid. So I, I don't really care what our form is. But a lot of people ask about this because we've been talking here the last couple of years quite a bit on, hey, we're limiting ourselves on how much manure we are willing to apply based on salt per acre. But that salt number per acre is 500 pounds. <laughs> So when you start talking about, oh, you're going to use a little bit of liquid fertilizer, how much salt could you possibly have in that? You're not going to get anywhere near 500 pounds. So if we're broadcasting, then I'm not that worried. Where we get really concerned, though, whether it's liquid or dry, is using lots of salt in the furrow. So either way, liquid or dry, I'm always going to be concerned about how much salt do I have in that furrow and close to the seed. So the more gap you have between the seed and where you place the fertilizer, the safer you are. Nevertheless, if let's say that I have uh, a fair amount of salt in a two by two, for example, so I'm two inches over, two inches down from the seed. If I do that and at some point the root hits that, then if I have too much salt there, the root can burn off. If, if you want to look on your farm, just dig up some roots a little bit, and you'll see it. It's, it'll literally turn it black, and you'll burn it off. Well, that's obviously not good. So we have to be careful, just not as careful. And then what I was what I was talking about with the manure and just broadcasting any fertilizer is just salt overall on an entire acre. But then it's spread out so much that at each little spot that the root might hit, there's very little salt there. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but honestly, I don't care if it's liquid or dry. 
I'm worried about salt, and I'm more worried about salt the closer I get to the seed. All right, thanks for the question. Uh, this is probably going to be a longer one here, and we've got just a little bit of time before a break, but I'll at least get it started. Robert in northern Illinois said, hey, guys, still busy in the fields here, but jumping in and out of the truck, I heard you talking about putting your soybean population lower in the good areas. Yep. The same places that you'd put your corn populations higher. Yep. Well, I didn't hear what your answer was because I got off to the next job. So could you explain that again to me about why you like low population soybeans in yeah. the good areas and high population corn in those same good areas? Yep. It's because soybeans can really adjust based on their environment. So when they get tremendous fertility, they're going to grow tall and thick and and branch out and everything else, you're going to have just tremendous growth. Well, when you have that, a lot of times you get more lodging issues. You have more disease problems. You don't need all that growth. So that's where we want to cut back is in those high fertility, high yield areas. And on what I'll call the junk ground, let's face it, corn at a minimum, it's probably always growing five, six feet tall, something like that. Well, soybeans, it's not that way. In the, well, again, we consider junk areas like on our farm, the beans might not even get knee high. Well, that's not real good because then they don't shade the row very well. I have worse weed control. I don't want that. I want to push the growth a little bit. So if I add more plants, then that pushes the growth higher. And then I, I in a lot of cases, number one, end up with more yield. Number two, I have better weed control. And so that's usually what we're looking for. So generally speaking, in our farm, we're cutting back maybe 20% in the good areas. We're bumping 20% in the bad areas with soybeans, and we flip-flop that with corn. We'll dive back into more of your questions right after this. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Did you know 20% of stored corn is overventilated by three points of moisture? On 100,000 bushels, that's a whole semi-load. Stop this problem for as little as $2,100 per bed with the end zone for corn from FarmShop MFG. Learn more at FarmShopMFG.com. Take your tillage to the next level with the Insight Universal Tillage Tool from McFarland Ag. With more adjustability and flexibility, the Insight is the ultimate one-pass tillage tool. Visit McFarlandAg.com to find your closest dealer. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example. Talk openly and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. 
Just because your combine is one brand doesn't mean its corn head should be the same, especially when it costs you yield. Drago corn heads are engineered to harvest more. Lowest profile saves ears, self-esting deck plates save kernels, longer knife rollers reduce trash, and aggressive gathering chains pick up stocks. No other corn head works like a Drago or pays you back like one. Get the best deals of the season through December 15th. Learn more at DragoOffers.com. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio, taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also email us radio at agphd.com, which is exactly what Claire did from up in Ontario, Canada. Claire says, I've been listening to your radio show, watching videos for a while now. just want to say thanks. you got an awesome learning platform here. Uh, my question today, uh, in our area, we've got a common cation exchange capacity range of 15 to 25. If I was going to apply nitrogen using urea, should I be applying a nitrogen stabilizer? Uh, in our area, we've got a product called Anvil, which has two modes of action, duramide plus NBPT. And I'm just wondering, would that be a good stabilizer for volatility? And then also, how long is it going to tie the N up? When will it be released and available for crops? Okay, so let me first say this. 15 to 25 CEC, usually we're talking about the maximum holding capacity for soil is roughly 150 to 250 pounds. You have to subtract out what is already in the soil. So let's say there's 50 pounds there. That would mean I would, if it was my ground, be willing to apply 100 to 200 pounds of nitrogen on that ground. However, it's fall right now, and if we're raising a spring crop, Number one, there's no way I'm putting urea out there. Number two, even if I put anhydrous, which I'm perfectly fine with in the fall, I want to wait until late fall to put that on. And then I want to plant right away in the spring. So that gives me the best opportunity to have fast uptake on that nitrogen without loss. But I'm also going to be really careful about where I'm putting this. And I don't have the background on the field. So for example, we farm some river bottom ground once every five to 10 years it floods. Well, even though we've had drought for three and a half years now, I don't know for sure. We might have the most snowfall ever and a whole bunch of spring rain, and we could have flooding next spring. It could happen. Probably won't, but it could. So would I put any nitrogen out there this fall? No chance. No way. Would I put any nitrogen out real early in the spring until I planted the crop and, and until I feel pretty comfortable it's not flooding? Uh, no, I'm waiting on that as well. So I'm going to be much, much more cautious on fields that either I'm not sure what I want to plant out there or fields that could have some type of flooding issue or any other environmental concern. All right. So with that all said, I will just tell you, I'm perfectly fine using nitrogen stabilizers. I like nitrogen stabilizers, especially when I'm using higher rates, when nitrogen costs quite a bit, and when I'm putting it out a little ways in advance. 
For example, if I was going to go side dress and I only wanted to throw 50 pounds out there, maybe 100 pounds when my corn is knee high, a stabilizer is a lot less likely to pay because that nitrogen is probably going to get used up fairly quickly. But on the other hand, if I'm putting that urea out that you're talking about and I'm going to do it at planting time, well, it's going to be quite a while before it, it all gets used up. So there are three types of losses out there. There's volatilization, where it just goes up in the air right away. And with the stabilizers you're talking about, and, and Darren, I don't remember with exactly what all you said there, but let's just say that they protect for vol- they both volatility. Volatility is it. Yep. Okay. They both just protect for volatility. So I can overcome that with tillage or with rainfall. So in other words, if I look at the forecast and I see, hey, in the next three days, there's a 100% chance of rain and I'm going to get half an inch to an inch and a half. I might just put the urea out there without that volatility protection. Or if I say I'm going to put the urea out and I'm going to till it in within a couple of days, I, I'm fine without the volatility protection. Now, the other two things that you could consider in terms of loss, denitrification, that's basically if your soil is a little bit waterlogged, and then leaching. All right, so if it can move down into the groundwater, especially with lighter soils, lots of rain, that kind of thing. So those would be two other types of losses that you could protect against. How quickly is that nitrogen going to come available for the crop? It's usually fairly quick. The hotter it is then, and the more microbial activity you have in that soil, in other words, the better soil health you have, the faster it's, it's going to come available. So... I wouldn't expect that if you put this stabilizer on, you aren't going to have any nitrogen available for a month or anything like that. That's just simply not true in most cases from what we found. Usually it's starting to come available almost right away, and it's going to extend that life of your nitrogen, extend the time when it's going to come available. But yeah, you're still going to have some that's coming available fairly soon, at least in our experience. All right, thanks for the question. This one from Jared over in Illinois. I guess uh, I'm a conventional till farmer, corn, soybean rotation. Pigweed is my main concern. I switched to Enlist soybeans a few years ago, and I initially started off using Enlist One and Liberty, one shot of each. But the last two years, I've used two shots of Enlist One, and it's worked pretty good. But the Liberty's been so expensive, I haven't been using it. I hear you guys talking about the lower price of Liberty, and my dealer agrees with you that the price is down enough now I should reconsider my program. So I'm curious, when do you use Enlist One, first shot or second shot? (laughs) When do you use Liberty, first shot or second shot? And uh, just wonder if you would share the best practices for using Liberty. It's been a while since I used it. And uh, by the way, I'm using the spray tips for Enlist One. I'm sure that's one of the changes I need to make. It is. Okay, so first of all, you can use Enlist One and Liberty either in your first pass or your second pass. So that's the good news. But you have to think about, let's let's start, start with the best practices for Liberty, and then I'll tell you which one we would recommend first and which one second. So Liberty best practices are basically this. It's almost the opposite of Enlist One. We want more water, we want more spray pressure, we want smaller droplets, and we want to make sure we have amazing coverage from top to bottom on that weed. When we do all those things, we have incredible control. It's great. When you don't, then um, it is probably going to be much worse for control than Enlist 1. So, for example, if you use the exact same spray nozzle you're using with Enlist 1 and spray it the exact same way, you're probably not going to be like super tickled with your performance with Liberty. 
Okay, so knowing that coverage is the key, just ask yourself the question, would you rather be out there earlier when everything is smaller and there's less crop canopy, or later when everything is bigger and there is more crop canopy? Well, I think that's pretty obvious. So if it's me, I'm probably running Liberty in the first pass, and then in the second pass, I'm planning on Enlist 1. Now, hopefully, when I said things are bigger, hopefully it's just the crop that's bigger and not the weeds. But if you go out there right before you spray and you go, oh, no, I'm I'm late and, oh, everything got ahead of me and I don't know what the heck happened here, but I'm looking at a bunch of foot-tall weeds, I'm going to tell you right now, Enlist 1's not killing those. But if you were to throw Liberty together with Enlist 1, you got a better shot. It's still off-label, but you got a lot better shot. So I'd probably do Liberty first. I'd probably plan on Enlist 1 second, and worst case scenario, if in some super weedy areas you need to spike in some Liberty with the Enlist 1, that's the direction that I would go. All right, thanks for the question. Get this feedback from Wayne on our cotton talk today. He said, I enjoyed your coverage of cotton on today's program. Your usual program's enjoyable for me because it's a change from what we're doing down here in Cotton in our limited rainfall environment in West Texas. However, hearing you speak with Cody and the producers in Georgia and Arkansas is really nice. If you need a quick maturing variety you'd like to put in for your field day, let me know. We'll send some seed up. I'm hoping to take a driving vacation and come to the field day one of these years. You better talk to Wayne there. That's yeah, thanks, good. Wayne. Really appreciate that. That was nice of you. Uh, had this question come in from Tim down in Nebraska. He said, corn rootworm was worse than I thought it was, as evidenced by the combine. Corn that hasn't been harvested is, at best, leaning, and at worst, flat. I used a corn rootworm BT hybrid this year, but I'm considering shifting to SmartStacks Pro yep. by my seed dealer's recommendation. Yep. I'm just curious, will that be enough, or will I also need an insecticide in furrow? I talked with my chemical dealer, and he talked to me about Index liquid, but it's a lot more expensive than Capture. So is Index <laughs> yeah. worth the money, or is Capture enough, and do I even need insecticide if I'm using SmartStacks Pro? Excellent questions. Let's put it this way. As farmers, we always want to try to get by spending as little as possible. This year alone, could you get by with SmartStacks Pro? Most likely you could. But it's probably not going to take real long and resistance issues could pop up. So I'll just tell you on our farm, we are using Capture LFR and SmartStacks Pro in our continuous corn acres. And on top of that, we're bug bombing. In other words, we're spraying around tassel and killing the adult corn rootworm beetles because we raise so much corn. We're going for such high yields and there's a whole bunch of corn in our area too. So we just have ridiculous rootworm pressure, kind of like what it sounds like you have. Your other question about, so you don't have to do the, the insecticide. I probably would, and we are on our farm. Capture LFR, by the way, came down in price this year, so that's good news. Index is better than Capture LFR because it's Capture, plus it's an organophosphate insecticide. So it's got two modes of action. So yes, it's better, but you're right. It costs probably three times the money. Hey, thanks for the questions. I really appreciate that. And thanks for listening today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.